Mark chapter 6, uh, 6b through 13. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we ask that you who have given us this uh, would give us insight into this. Uh, to recognize the greatness of Jesus, but to also to recognize the call that he places upon his people. Uh, Help us to hold these things in in tension and embrace them both. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Those of you who have been around here for a little while uh, are familiar. Some of us are going through what's called the Vine Project, and we're looking at what discipleship is from a biblical perspective uh, with the intention of uh, beginning to make recommendations for our congregation that uh, we would be more faithful to what the Scriptures teach with regard to what disciples are and what they're supposed to do and how to make them, that kind of thing. Now, one of the biblical convictions that uh, they developed and We'll hear more about this in the future. I'm actually going to do a series that flows out of this thing. But you get a little little appetizer today. Um, is it talks about well, what is a disciple? And we, we are examining the different passages and, and trying to understand what a disciple actually is. That, that you know it's more than a learner, which is what is commonly used. And one word that uh, arose that I particularly like is apprentice. Because the apprentice uh, indicates uh, that there's more going on than simply um, receiving informational content. You're learning about how, a way to live, and you're, you're sort of intended to practice this. You're, you're in an apprenticeship where you're taking information and putting it to practice in the hopes of a lifetime of having something like this. So... Let's keep that in mind as we look at this particular passage. But I want us to keep in mind the context in which we begin this whole thing, and that is the rejection of Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth. How did Jesus respond to the rejection in Nazareth? And let's be honest, uh, how many of you like rejection? Anybody? Anybody? There's probably a couple people hiddenly who like to be rejected, because that means they don't have to love anybody, right? But that's not the most, that's not average person. Most of us struggle with rejection. Uh, and, and by that, I mean we tend to take rejection and, and we go to our little pity place, you know, where we, we go and we want to hide, we want to be alone, that kind of thing. Or we go to our angry place. How dare they? Where does Jesus go? 
he went out among the villages teaching. Uh, Jesus didn't throw a little pity party. Uh, D- Jesus didn't sit on a, on a hill sort of like Jonah and, and, and rail against those lousy people from Nazareth who rejected his message and, and that. He just continued his mission. Because the focus for Jesus was not himself. The, the focus uh, for Jesus was not his own feelings. Uh, the, the focus for Jesus really was the mission that his father had sent him on, and he was going to continue to fulfill that mission. And that mission was primarily about teaching. So Jesus continues to go about the teaching, uh, the, the villages in the more interior region of Galilee, away from the Sea of Galilee, and teach people. But Jesus also expands his mission. Now, I, I, I want to stop for a second, in part because I keep getting ahead of myself this morning. We, when we think about what Jesus did, I want us to, to kind of to draw something from that. And I put, I'm putting it this way. You only control what you can control. Now, that sounds very pithy and profound now, doesn't it? You only control what you can control. Um, but I've been telling my daughters this a little bit. And it, it, it comes back to, you know, trying to teach them about life and the, the, the challenges and obstacles that they experience in life and how uh, the people that they try to be friends with don't always want to be friends with them and those kinds of things. You can't control what other people do. Okay, Jesus in a sense, from a human perspective, couldn't control the response of the people in Nazareth, but what Jesus could control, okay, I said from a humanly perspective, so, you know, let's not factor the, the sovereignty thing in here. I saw that face, okay? Um, he could control his response to that, Okay? And oftentimes we get ourselves into trouble because uh, we forget what we actually have control over and, and do not make choices in light of the things that we have control over. Uh, but instead we get wrapped up in the things that we have no control over and we torture ourselves because of that. Like the rejection of others. No control over that. You have no control over whether or not somebody's going to like you. You have no control. But you have control over whether what type of person you will be and whether you're the type of person that they'll generally want to spend time with or not want to spend time with as an application of that. And so here we see Jesus not, not you know, lost in what happened or what, how people responded, but Jesus focusing on what he has control over, and that is going about the Father's business. Okay? And it's not just what he's going to do, now it also transcends into what he's going to tell his disciples to do because he begins to send them out two by two. He's multiplying his ministry. You would think this would be a strange time, that this, this seeming setback in, in Nazareth would be a time when he might want to regroup and rethink, but instead he redoubles the efforts by sending out his disciples. In other words, Jesus is not simply giving his disciples theoretical knowledge or theological knowledge. Certainly he's giving them that. But he's also giving them time to put these things into practice because 
one day he's not going to be there. And they're going to have to do this same thing on their own. So better to do it while there's training wheels available. Jesus is still nearby. Apprenticeship. They're doing this under the, under the gaze of the master. And, and so he'll be able to tell them what they've done right and what they've done wrong and, and uh, all of these things. He tells them to practice what he's been teaching them thus far. This is temporary. This is a trial run. This is not the, <coughs> the, the final sending out of his disciples. Jesus is not tossing them into the deep end of the pool and neither should we. But let's note for something here as well. They went in pairs. They were not sent out alone. Ministry often should be considered a team effort, not a solo venture. I think often we do our missionaries disservice by sending them out alone uh, as opposed to in teams, um, especially church planters. It's not enough, I think, to have a church planter wife along for the ride. They sometimes need another person who's as fully engaged and not uh, focused on uh, kids, perhaps. But ministry is often a team effort, and in part due to the frailty of sinners or the messengers themselves. We need mutual encouragement because in the course of ministry, there are setbacks just as they learned in Nazareth. They also need protection due to sin and temptation, holding each other accountable for their attitudes, actions, and behaviors. So it's important, I believe, that the Jesus sent them out in pairs. But he didn't just send them out with each other. Jesus gave them authority over unclean spirits. Think about this for a moment. Because remember, let's go back to the very first sentence of this gospel, the, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we talked about how this went to Rome, and there was somebody at Rome who claimed to be a son of God, a.k.a. Caesar. <coughs> Excuse me. Caesar doesn't share his power. Caesar hoards his power and uses his power to protect his power. Uh, but here we see Jesus, who has uh, all authority in heaven and earth, and yet he's giving it away to his disciples. He's giving them authority over something I would think would be incredibly dangerous. He gives them authority over unclean spirits. I mean, I'm not sure I'd trust those guys with something like that. Uh, I'm not sure I would be trusted with something like that, and yet Jesus gives this away. But also note a difference between Caesar and Jesus. Caesar utilizes his power to expand his power, not just protect his power. In other words, he's used, he utilizes his power to enslave other peoples. But what Jesus is doing <coughs> is he's seeking to set people free. This Son of God, the true Son of God, is setting people free, liberating people, so they can come under his good rule, not, his, not the rule of a king like Caesar. 
<coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> ah. So he, Jesus enlists them into this cosmic war, but he also equips them to engage in this war because they're not just going to preach a message, uh, but because of the specifics of that particular day, okay, <clears throat> they're going to engage in spiritual warfare in a sense that we don't engage in spiritual warfare. We see in Revelation 12, <coughs> when the child is about to be born, the dragon is ready. Okay? There was an increase in demonic activity on the earth during the time of Jesus and shortly thereafter with the, with the apostles. And so it's a little different, I think, than what we normally experience. Okay? And so Jesus equips them to deal with that. And as a result, we find later on in verse 13 that they did in fact cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick. And so they were not just engaging in the, the, the ministry of the Word, but they're also engaging in deed ministry to accompany the ministry of the Word. And we're seeing, in fact, that many demons were cast out. It was not one or two, three or four, but we see many. And that there were many people who were healed from their illnesses. They're authenticating or God is rather authenticating the message of Jesus by these miracles. We see this talked about in Hebrews chapter 2. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those, uh, to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So in Hebrews 2, it talks about um, it was declared first by Jesus, and then it was attested to us by those who heard. Okay, so he's, he's talking about this is act, the author of Hebrews here seems to be like a almost a third generation, or someone who received the ministry of the apostles. And one of the things that happened through the ministry of the apostles, according to the author of Hebrews, is that God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. Okay, That's something that we ordinarily expect to see, but it's that's authenticating the message of the apostles as the true message of Jesus. What are we to make of something like what Francis Chan has recently reported. Uh, for those of you who are on the Internet, you probably may have seen that. For those of you who aren't, you probably haven't. Francis Chan is uh, an interesting sort of dude. He's sort of a theolog theological mongrel. Um, he rests in too many camps, so he's an oddity in some ways. But apparently he was in Myanmar recently and reports... He's not a televangelist. He's not Benny Hinn, so this is what was weird about it. So he reports that basically everyone he touched got healed. I don't know what to make of it, personally. One, because I can't verify any of it. It's difficult. But I also recognize that sometimes on the frontier missions, things happen that don't ordinarily happen. You're in extraordinary circumstances, and the Westminster Confession does distinguish between 
the ordinary means of grace and the fact that God can do what God can do. Don't know what to make of it. But I know in this instance of the scriptures, this instance of, of this missionary, uh, not missionary journey because it was within Israel, but amongst the villages there in Galilee, God did amazing things through these men. Our deeds are more ordinary, but the gospel preaching should be accompanied by deeds nonetheless. Deeds ministry, just like that extraordinary ministry they experienced, uh, or, or in particular, bleh, engaged in, uh, met the tangible needs of people. There were people who were possessed by demons, and so they cast the demons out. There were people who were sick, and so they made the people well. Tangible needs met by them. And so we too should be engaging in meeting some of the tangible needs that we come across. That's part of why Jesus in the parable of the sheep and the goats talks about you saw people who were naked and you gave them clothes. You saw people who were hungry and you gave them food. You saw people who needed help with health issues and maybe you helped them get to a doctor. Maybe you helped them pay for the doctor's appointment. Maybe you helped them pay for some medication they couldn't afford. We don't know, but it, you're healing them in a slightly different way instead of putting your head in the sand. Reminded of a person not too long ago, who I realized uh, needed to uh, get to the VA because they were having mental health issues. And it would have been easy to say, you have a car, get, your, get thyself to the VA. But they were not in the right frame of mind to get themselves to the VA. And so what ordinary ministry looks like is is uh, putting your sermon um, preparation aside for a little while and, and spending time in a car with a person who is not in their right mind. That's ordinary ministry. Anyone can do that. So Jesus sends out apprentices with his authority, is how he responds to the rejection in Nazareth. The second question that comes to me as I think of this larger text, uh, how can they do what Jesus does? How can they engage in this, uh, this ministry? And we see a lot of this uh, in verses 8 through 11. And, it's, and what we discover is a series of what could be considered odd instructions given to the disciples as Jesus prepares to send them out. How would you like to be one of those 12 guys? Right? And Jesus says, take nothing. You can have a staff or a walking stick. Okay, you can have that. Uh, Obviously, the shoes on your feet, and you can wear a tunic, but don't bring two. Don't bring a change of clothes. More than that, uh, um, don't bring bread. Don't bring a bag. Don't bring money. You see, like when, when Amy and I travel... She's the type of person who wants to, to bring all the lunches, you know. So she's so Jesus is telling her, don't bring the bread. And I'm the guy who likes to eat in the airport, so he's telling me, don't bring money, you know. 
so to speak. No provisions, no extra clothes. The, the bag that is referred to here is uh, believed to be a beggar's bag. Uh, and so what Jesus is also telling them is you're, you're not to be uh, mendicants for Jesus, beggars for Jesus. When, when you hear the story of, say, Francis of Assisi, uh, that's what he did. He left everything behind. He embraced sister poverty, and uh, they begged every day. And Jesus is basically telling uh, them, you're to be engaged in the ministry of the word. You're not to be begging. You're basically going to receive your living from the gospel. And if you're doing it right, so to speak, you'll have what you need. So, um, ultimately, I think what this is pointing to is the fact uh, that they were to depend completely and fully upon Jesus while they were on this relatively short missionary tour. It wasn't about uh, instructions for the rest of their lives. It wasn't meant. It didn't mean that they were to uh, embrace sister poverty for the rest of their lives. But while they're on this ministry tour, this is how they were to live, which was similar to how Jesus lived. In fact, it's identical to how Jesus lived during his earthly ministry. They were to depend upon him. Paul talks about depending on Jesus in terms of his teaching and preaching um, in Colossians 1, where he struggles with all Christ's energy that he powerfully works within me, Paul says. And they're to to work, they're to teach, dependent upon Christ to provide for them, not simply the words, but also the food that they need to continue to live, to provide a place for them to have shelter. And so he speaks further about this. He says, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. Meaning when you enter a town and someone welcomes you in out of the, the, uh, the general Middle Eastern hospitality, as long as you're in that village or that town, stay in that house. That sounds a little odd to us. But perhaps, as many have noted, this has to do with the fact that we're, as human beings, we tend to always look for the better situation. Right? Isn't it common now, especially among, among younger people, um, to hold out um, on agreeing to do anything to see if something better comes up? Might get a better offer. A better, better looking guy might, might ask you out on a date. Well, in this case, it's a better living situation with better food. The upperly mobile minister, uh, so to speak. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Stay where you begin until it's time for you to leave. Partake of their hospitality, but don't seek more than their hospitality. Because people who did receive their message would then receive them into their homes, just as we saw Lydia welcoming Paul and his ministry team into her home. This is an application of what we see in, in for instance, in 1 Timothy 5, where it says, <coughs> talking about uh, elders who, who labor are worthy of double honor, especially those in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. 
and the laborer deserves his wages. So Paul brings up some Old Testament things and about an ox of all things and applies that. So I'm an ox. But no, the idea meaning you don't prevent the ox from eating the grain that it's treading. Just like you have to stop and sharpen an axe periodically when you're cutting down wood. Paul brings this up again in 1 Corinthians 9 in a similar passage. He quotes the same thing and says, Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. And so uh, the faithful minister should expect to receive from this. And we see a similar uh, encouragement in Galatians 6. Let the one who is being taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. So, they were not to support themselves <coughs> in the ministry in this thing. They were intended to rest upon God's provision for them through the message itself. This began a rather healthy tradition within the church of um, caring for itinerant pastors and missionaries who would uh, come through town. But unfortunately, um, as in all things, um, legalism set in. In the Didache, it's rather interesting. They say that uh, you can you know, show hospitality to a traveling teacher uh, up to two days. But if they try to stay a third day, they're a false teacher. Not sure how you get there <laughs> from that. Nah, you know, but uh, there, we, this is what we tend to do. Their reception by others really determines if they stay and minister within a particular community for an extended period of time. Uh, Jesus also anticipates that there might be communities that don't listen, that don't receive his disciples. And so he says that if any place won't receive you, and here's the key, if they will not listen to you, when you go, you symbolically shake the dust off your feet as a sign against them that they're really opposing God. And God will shake them off his feet as well. This is simply an application of what we find in places like Matthew 7. Don't give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. And so, uh, you know, there's a difference between um, persistence Wise persistence and um, foolish stubbornness. And when, when these people were not, again, this is a particular context, okay? This is, he's going to, they're going to the people of Israel at this point in time, so they don't have to spend um, time giving them a biblical framework to understand the work and ministry of Jesus, right? So, uh, they could quickly make an assessment of whether this group of people is open to the message of Jesus Christ, and if not, move on. Don't try to play the martyr and work too hard. This is not about foreign missions. 
which does in fact require much more time to learn a culture, to learn a language, and um, to explain the gospel. So, uh, you know, don't think, Joan, that, that, that you've disobeyed Jesus by staying in Mexico for so long. Uh, you didn't. It's a very different dynamic that we're talking about here in these particular circumstances. But what I think it does rule out is what I'm going to call trust fund ministry. Have you heard heard of uh, the guy who is rich, who plants his own church, and he's independently wealthy, so he can do whatever he wants, say whatever he wants? I've heard of some of those guys. There's a temptation to do that. There's a temptation I have... um, that my book sells so many copies that I can be that guy. I don't care what you guys say anymore. But no, I, they need, there needs to be the accountability, okay, uh, that, that the people of God can say, no, you, you're going off the rails. And, and we, can, we can do something about that. Whereas um, if you own the building and everything, then you... No one can do anything about that aside from just leaving. Okay. But it doesn't matter to you because you're independently wealthy. You don't care. And so these are men who are, being, in a sense, being held accountable for what they're doing in the name of Jesus. And so Jesus sends out apprentices that are dependent upon him. Third final question for us this morning is, did this mean that they just healed people? Because it, so far it talks about um, they've been given authority to cast out demons, and, and you know, we've, we've seen how they've cast out demons and healed people. But this passage embraces what the Vine Project talks about in terms of every member word ministry. That's one of the phrases that we'll come back to later uh, in the future. Uh, but every member word ministry, all 12 of these disciples engaged in word ministry. It says in verse 12, they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And so uh, in addition to dealing with their, um, well, with the reality of demonic possession, as well as uh, physical illness, they're dealing with people's sin. And they're addressing people's sin. And we see here that sin issues uh, are addressed by faith and repentance. Sin issues are not dealt with via exorcism or healing. Okay? Um, Dave Powelson in his, his book, Safe and Sound, which uh, I, I read when I was mostly in New Hampshire, uh, talks about this. Uh, it's very helpful if you, if you want to think about this a little more. It's not a very big book, very short book, less than 100 pages. So, uh, But when we think about the ministry, it's, it's uh, very common for people who are caught up in the demonic kind of ministry to think that, well, there's a demon of lust and a demon of greed and a demon of lying, and so they got to name the demons and all of this kind of thing. And we don't see 
Jesus casting out demons to heal people of sin. What we see is the message of the gospel calling people to faith and repentance to deal with their sin. And so if someone you know has a sin issue or you have a sin issue, it's not about being something being cast out of you. It's more about you believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and turning away from your sin in repentance. That is the kind of ministry that we are to engage in. But we see that the disciples are are recognizing and addressing different kinds of problems, and for each of those problems, there's a different solution. You don't tell a sick person to repent. You don't try to put oil on a person who's demonically possessed. And so we see uh, this... Um, the disciples engaged in this full-orbed kind of ministry uh, that is suited to the particular needs. It's not a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. But it requires wisdom. I had to go to the doctor. I'm assuming that the PA had some wisdom and prescribing for me what uh, they prescribed for me. And that it was not a one-size-fits-all kind of drug that cures everything from lumbago to cancer, right? Uh, That it was suitable for what was actually wrong with me as opposed to just simply a panacea which would do nothing for me. Okay. Gospel ministry is the same way. You have to understand what's going on in a person's life so then you're able to make apply the proper gospel uh, cure to it. Okay? Hoping that makes sense. It's all drear, you know, weird in my head from antibiotics and medications. So, But what we should recognize here is that Jesus, the Son of God and Savior, helps people like you and me with all of these things. Not just one of these things, not just two of these things, but all of these things. And so there's a sense in which uh, no matter what ails us, we are to bring that to Jesus, and Jesus has a way of dealing with it. And it's not in a one-size-fits-all approach. But it is connected to who Jesus is and what he does for his people. Now, let's get back to the fact that they're proclaiming repentance. This is not a novelty uh, for them. They had a, they had a bucket load of prophets they, drew, they were able to draw upon who were declaring repentance because God is merciful and was seeking to forgive his people. As I think about this, there's, I, I think, a warning for us. And probably it's because of the pride of the human heart is that we, we tend to look down on either the sinners, the sick, or the possessed. In other words, we'll, we'll probably, probably tend to look down upon the person we're not. You know? And to wrongfully judge them as opposed to seek to bring them to Jesus. 
so that they can be restored, so they can be made whole, so they can be pardoned. I see that problem a lot in pastors. I'll say that because I'm a pastor. That we, we tend to isolate certain sins. And we tend to judge those certain sins more severely than other sins and look down upon those, those kinds of sinners. As opposed to saying, reminding them that the grace of God is sufficient for their sin too. One last thing I want us to keep in mind here. Who went on this missionary journey? All 12. So that means what? Judas too. Now, we know, Jesus knows, someone's going to betray him. We don't know whether he knew it was Judas or not. It's not really important. Jesus sends all 12. There's, there's no note here that somehow, you know, everyone did a great job on this thing, except that Judas dude. But what we see is that we're reading between the lines, we're to understand that Judas faithfully proclaimed the message of repentance, that Judas was also right there and casting out demons. Uh, that Judas was right there anointing people with oil, laying hands on them, praying for them, and seeing people being healed of their their diseases. Uh, we, We are to understand that Judas was just as successful in carrying out the mission Jesus sent them on as the other 11 guys. He does not distinguish himself by his failure. He did not bail on the mission like John Mark would later on. And this should encourage us in the sense that God accomplishes his great and precious promises even when the messenger isn't saved. Why does that matter? My first pastorate, I followed a man who left the ministry, and the faith. And there were a lot of people who were wondering, am I saved? Does my marriage, you know, did my marriage ceremony count? (laughs) That kind of thing. Yes, you're still married. Too bad. Okay. It's the power is not in the person. The power is always in Jesus. And Jesus, who can speak uh, to Balaam through a donkey, uh, can continue to speak the truth and set people free, even if the, the, the person he uses doesn't actually believe the message that he's teaching. We see evidence of this. Matthew 7, again. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, 
you workers of lawlessness. If you would have looked at them, you would have thought, godly person in the kingdom. Jesus says, don't know you. That's Judas. He did. He he looked the part. But Jesus never knew him in saving fashion. And in fact, he was a worker of lawlessness. So there's a reminder here, there's a warning here to believe on the Jesus that you preach. Believe the Jesus that you're offering to other people. Be sure that you have a share in this great salvation and that you're not just a guy who or a gal who likes to talk. Make sure you have a share in it by faith and faith alone. And so Jesus sends out apprentices with his message. And if we're to wrap these three things up, what we see is that Jesus wants more than learners. He wants apprentices, people who do likewise. So discipleship is easily misunderstood. <coughs> we tend to gravitate to the different understandings. Uh, you know, uh, Here we see a development in the Bible's understanding and practice of discipleship. Being a disciple begins with hearing, believing, and learning the Word of God, but Jesus then sends His disciples out to speak that Word of God. Disciples are apprentices at the feet of Jesus, intended to meet the needs of others through word and deed ministry. Have you received the full-orbed ministry of Jesus to you and therefore receive salvation? If so, are you then offering the full orb ministry of Jesus to others? Let's pray. (coughs) Father, I hope that made sense. But I do ask that you would uh, be working in us so that we are not simply learners, but that we're increasingly apprentices who are putting what we learn into practice on our daily, regular basis. And that part of that is that we're offering Jesus to other people um, in ways that are suitable to their condition, um, their particular sins and their particular afflictions. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.